Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible open there, um, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It's near the back end of your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let, it, let me catch us up as to where we left off um, just a few weeks ago. So in 1 Corinthians, this is a letter that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Paul planted this church at Corinth, and now he's somewhere else planting other churches, writing back to the church at Corinth. And he's, uh, had been uh, messages had been sent to him, other letters had been sent to him, telling him about all the problems that existed in this church. And I mean, uh, and essentially you could kind of, if you want to bring a modern day terminology into it, they had 99 problems, but the gospel wasn't one in that church, right? It, they had problems with money, their views on sex, their, their views on uh, what they should engage in and not engage in within the church, the public gathering and Sunday gathering on a Sunday morning was absolute chaos in this church, and we'll look at that in a couple weeks. But in particular, we left off in chapter 8, where Paul starts his argument on uh, this, this, this food uh, offered to idols. And he starts off this argument saying, like, yeah, we know that all these so-called gods aren't real, and then we, can, we have this freedom to do whatever we want, but this uh, engaging in our freedoms for some is defiling their conscience. And so want, Paul wants to address this problem, and, does, and he does what he does with every other issue in this church. He responds with the gospel. He wants to reframe all these problems that the, this church faces and, and that what we face with the good news of the gospel. So when uh, Pastor Ryan preached this passage back in November, we saw in chapter 8 that we, are, we know we're growing in spiritual maturity when we are growing in love. And then along comes chapter 9. And I, I, what I think we need to see is what Paul's going to do with this chapter that we're about to read in its entirety. Is he's using his life as a real example of what it means to be free in Christ, to truly be spiritually mature and being willing to lay down our own rights as an act of love for others. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 together. Verse 1, Paul writes this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal or of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles or the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working from, for a living? Who serves as a soldier at its own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law also say the same? What is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should and thresh and hope and sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made 
use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in a temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this of my own will. I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge and ask to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. How are we doing, Veritas? Hanging in there? Full chapter of Corinthians. Here we go. So in order to break down Paul's flow of thought throughout this chapter, I think it's helpful to break it down into three main sections. And we're just showing our Baptist roots this morning with all the alliteration. And hey, it just works, okay? It'll help fix it in our brains. We see Paul's rights, Paul's refusal, and then Paul's race, right? Let's look at this first section about Paul's rights. So in in the wake of chapter 8, Paul, again, is making this argument that we should give up our rights for the good of others, that we should grow in spiritual maturity. And the way we do that is in our love for others. And even more pungently, I think that we, sh- we should remember his argument is you may have the right to eat meat sacrificed in the temple, but Paul's saying that love trumps our rights to do this or that. And even more pungently, love trumps freedoms. So then chapter 9 continues this line of thought with Paul's life as a case study. And Paul comes right out of the gate sounding a bit like Russell Crowe in Gladiator. You know, like, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Are you not entertained? You know, this is, this is his life story he's telling here, right? I mean, he kind of is, he's, he's coming out the gate. He's making a, a strong argument here. And so for the next 12 verses, Paul defends his own rights as an apostle as someone who works in full-time ministry, and all builds to verse 14, where he says this, in the same way, 
The Lord commanded, that's Jesus, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. What he's making an argument for here is we should pay our pastors. We should pay those who labor hard in ministry, right? And let's let's trace Paul's argument through all these examples he gives. See, the first thing he does is he kind of appeals to the Corinthian church themselves as an example of why this should happen, why you should pay pastors and ministry workers, right? He says that the fact that even the Corinthian church even exists is a testament of Paul's ministry and apostleship. See, a good definition of of an apostle, if that word's unfamiliar to many of us, is an early church leader who had an eyewitness testimony of seeing the risen of Jesus. Namely, all of the the 11 outside of uh, Judas, Jesus' closest disciples, were all called apostles, right? And beyond the church itself, Paul appeals to these kind of obvious practical freedoms, like kind of appeals to nature itself. He says, well, don't I have the right to eat and drink? You know, like, yeah, we all have the right to eat and drink, right? We should all go home and eat some lunch after this, maybe grab a bottle of water. Just your daily reminder, drink more water. Please do that, right? Paul, this is what Paul's doing here. But he says also, don't we have the right to travel along with a wife, uh, be an itinerant minister, and also taking along a believing wife? He tells us, you know, like Peter's got a wife. Well, all these other guys has, has a wife. We're not told in Paul's ministry that he ever had a wife. I have my suspicions about Paul's history there, but we're not told anything explicit in Scripture here. But he says, I have the right, we have the right to do this. Also, to, uh, lastly, he says, we should also have the right to refrain from other paid work. That like ministers, pastors, uh, in particular, uh, the ministers that preach and teach the gospel have the right to refrain from other work, to labor hard in ministry of the word and prayer, like Acts chapter 7 would say. He also then goes to kind of examples from human analogies, right? And this, this nature argument. He's like, well, soldiers get paid. Yeah, wouldn't that just be nice if all of your soldier duty, like you were also footing the bill for all those things yourself? You weren't actually taking home a paycheck for any of that stuff? All the military crowd in here just all froze up. You're like, what? I'd have to pay for health care. You know, what in the world? You know, and he's like, of course you don't do that, right? Two, farmers get their share in the crop, right? If, if you grow something, you should be able to partake on the things that you have grown. Also, shepherds get to share in the milk, right? Got to get that sheep milk, right? Yum, 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 sheep milk. Like, we can have some of that. These obvious examples point out the common sense nature of this issue. But then Paul shifts from these kind of natural arguments to the the, the Old Testament teaching and the law. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And it's interesting that he interprets this passage spiritually rather than literally. Saying that God wasn't only concerned about the cows here, right? He wasn't just concerned about cows being overworked hard and not getting fed at the end of the day. God's primary concern, yes, cows are important to God, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? (laughs) But he's more concerned about people here. People, those who work hard. And God's concern with this law went beyond that to the work of spiritual plowing, spiritual sowing, spiritual reaping. What could better define pastoral shepherding, eldering, pastoral ministry then this plowing, sowing, reaping, laboring hard in the, wor- in, in, in the Word and among people. So now Paul clearly has the right. 
And he's made the argument to be paid for preaching the gospel from all these examples. But then look back at verse 15 with me. Here's the catch. In verse 15, he says this, but I have not made use, made no use of any of these rights, for I am writing these things, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for I do this of my own will. I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, as so as to not make use full use of my right in the gospel. You almost feel the desperation in Paul's voice here. He's under absolute compulsion to preach the gospel. And he says if he he preaches under his own compulsion, that he's already received his own reward. reward. Presumably, like any uh, outward or self-congratulations that he could experience, any monetary or social status he could gain, Uh, By doing this, that would be his reward in that scenario, but not that. He calls this a responsibility to preach the gospel. And he calls it a stewardship, which means he doesn't own it. He's merely a manager of it. He's a conduit by which it is happening. It's been entrusted to him. He can spend it wisely or unwisely. Even within this, Paul is clearly within his his rights to ask or even require that he be paid for his ministerial work among the Corinthians. Yet, he has not made use of these rights. And this should be surprising for us. Here we see Paul's refusal. In Andrew Wilson's um, shorter commentary, 1 Corinthians for you, um, he he helpfully uh, points out that this passage, what Paul's not doing here is is reverse psychology. If you're a parent in the room, or if you're a child at one time, you can look back and see how your parents did this with you of like, um, you wanted something, hey, I want a cookie, and your parents are like, do you really want a cookie? Are you sure you don't want to wait until later when we can have dessert after dinner? And you're like, yeah, that's what I want. I want that. I don't want a cookie right now. And that's not what Paul's doing here. He's not trying to bait and switch these guys into trying to pay him. He's not trying to bait and switch these guys into feeling guilty for what's happening among them. Rather, Wilson helpfully points this out and will come up on the screen. Paul's refusal to accept payment is the perfect example of the point he's trying to make. Love for others is more important than your right to eat whatever you want or earn whatever you think you deserve. Now, that quote in particular, and in this example, I think holds a lot of wisdom for us and it speaks to our cultural moment, but I think our entire society kind of revolves around, at this moment, on on self-definitions, on our ability to kind of win things for ourselves, earn things for ourselves, or kind of, I've gained the status for myself, or my right to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. Like our entire society can kind of fit in one of those two buckets. And it's kind of uh, the way that it self-identifies. And what Paul is getting at here is that love is more important than any of that. And what true wisdom would point us to is not either of those two things as what 
we should be doing as followers of Jesus, but rather denying ourselves, refusing even to, to, to partake in our actual rights for the good of others. See, it should be startling that Paul is choosing to operate out of step with the rest of the natural argument and biblical argument that he's made for getting paid. See, all these Old Testament passages he's referenced and the command of Jesus in the same way. Even Jesus says, you know, in the same way that the priests in the Old Covenant, uh, Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. We should think it a bit odd that Paul kind of goes back on what he's just clarified. I think what Paul's doing here can be clarified by verse 12. It says, we have not used this right, made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Remember, remember Paul's grounds for boasting. And I know that that's a, a strange phrase for us, and we'll explore more of what Paul means by that at a later time. But this grounds for boasting is that he's not put any obstacle in the way of the gospel. And what, what, he's, what this means is that he's refused his very right to require payment for his work within the church. And I think this accords perfectly with his argument for what. Uh, why not to eat meat that others would find troubling? Again, let's zoom out of Paul's argument for a second back into 2023. You know, people living in America in this room right now, when was the last time that you or I refrained from doing quite anything that, may, uh, that you were in your full rights to do but chose not to do because it might steer the conscience of another person? Now, I know that many of us, like, we grew up in the church. If you've grown up in the church, like, the case study example is all, always alcohol, especially if it was in a Baptist church. Good Lord, they'd love to beat that horse to death, right? And so it's always like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But we don't even have the argument nowadays. We don't even let ourselves wander into having that argument, I mean, that, the conversation of, is this going to be good for my brother? From anything, to, to say whatever we want, to, to watch whatever we want, to consume whatever we want, all live on our Instagram channel, right? But Paul here, his example of Christian witness flies in the face of our current culture, our current moment we are living in. In his case, Paul describe, prescribes that you, you better pay for pastors, but then he basically pulls a do what I say, but not what I do here in like the holiest way possible. You better pay those pastors. Here's a bunch of reasons why, but you're never going to pay me. We've got to ask, why does he do this? Why is Paul doing this? Theologians seem to point to the uniqueness of Paul's calling to preach from Christ himself and what Paul calls his role as a slave, uh, which are, slaves are unpaid for their work. But I think we, you can see this in Paul's missionary strategy of, of conforming to the culture he was trying to reach as an evangelistic preacher. And he went into differing cultures of differing backgrounds with differing kind of cultural sensitivities. And we saw at the end of this passage, he says, to the, the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the, to the Greek, I became like a Greek. To those under the law, I became ones like under the law, outside the law, like one outside of the law. He was trying to reach people as an evangelistic church planner. This strategy was a necessity for Paul. Think about it. If after every house church gathering, the handful of folks that had gathered in there, if he stood at the back and said, well, that'll be 15 bucks, as he walked out the door, it wouldn't accord with the gospel. 
That wouldn't accord with anything of the way that Jesus has called us to operate. See, the gospel is good news. The gospel doesn't come with a price tag. When you read the, the New York Times, the New York Times does come with a, a price tag, and it's news as well. But the good news, the good news of the gospel, the eternal good news about Jesus, that God incarnate that died to redeem us from our sin and bondage to death and our own appetites, that good news is free. To, to see God in his glory and his beauty and majesty, he didn't need to rescue us from, uh, from our own rejection of him. But God chose to act in his grace to reach down to come, become incarnate, to take on flesh so that we would be redeemed back to him, restored to relationship of God as our Father by Christ the Son. That we would all be united as the church by the power of the Spirit that would dwell within each of us, empowering us for life and ministry and faithfulness to God. This God, born Jesus, son of Na a man of Nazareth, he chose up to give his own rights and die a sinner's death on a Roman cross for his rebellious, beloved, obsessed with their own rights. And that's us. We are those. May we remember the simple truths. Maybe you grew up in the church. And you remember John 3.16, that for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And 17, for God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, to demand payment. You better pay up for my redeeming act here. No. But in order that the world might be saved through him, free act of salvation that Christ partook of, of himself giving up his own rights so that we could gain his own. Rights to become sons and daughters of the Most High King. Rights to, to be able to give our whole lives to God as our acts of spiritual worship. And Paul, like Christ, gave up his own rights in order to put the gospel on display among the Corinthians. Again, like it says in verse 14, that he would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Like Paul, when we gather here on a Sunday morning at Veritas Church, we seek to not put any gospels, any obstacles in the way of anyone that would come on a Sunday morning hearing about the good news of the gospel. Again, it's the reason why we have service teams. It's the reason why Veritas Kids even exists. It's the reason why we put signs out in the parking lot. It's the reason why we're not obsessed with talking about this political thing or this kind of cultural thing at the time and nitpicking all kinds of people groups everywhere. We're going to keep the truths of the gospel, the most offensive good news that you could ever encounter because the gospel is offensive, because the gospel claims that you are a hopeless sinner, hopelessly in love with yourself and your own sin, so much so that you deserve the righteous judgment and punishment of God. Like, that's bad news. That's offensive. There is the offense of the gospel. That's a stumbling block for many. And many are just going to trip right over that thing and say, I don't want anything to do with that. It doesn't feel loving to say that about someone. It doesn't feel like you have enough hope in humanity. I don't know about you. Look at humanity. When's the last war? 
When was the last time we're, we're learning about a new genocide here? We're learning about new injustices there. We're learning about our hopelessness in, in, the, in the sake that we are hopelessly in love with our own sin and our own self. See, the only way to real freedom, which is counterintuitive, is to give up your rights. The things that you think that you own, the things that you think you deserve, the entitlements that you're carrying right now, the only way to real freedom and life and joy, Paul's saying, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ here. It's actually, this is the secret. Giving up your rights. Giving up some of those expectations. Giving up some of those things that you think you deserve. That's where real freedom's found. That's where real beauty is found in real dependence on God in every single facet of your life. And this leads us to the final verses of chapter 9 where we see Paul's final theme, Paul's race. This final section, Paul explains that he uses his freedom in Christ, not for personal gain, but to become a slave to all in hopes that they will know Christ. Again, these verses are famous. You know, his, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And it's easy to think in our Western brains when we read something like this um, of some type of like, weird version of like missionary Halloween costumes. You know what I mean? Like Paul puts on his, uh, well, I'm going to uh, be a biker guy today costume, and I'm going to reach the bikers for Jesus. And so uh, he gets him a, like a love mom tattoo, and like he starts fixing Harleys instead of, you know, making tents on the side. And so it's, we, we, we think it's like Paul putting on a costume here. It's not. Paul is literally, he, he's not putting a lot of things on actually, He's actually just taking a lot of things off. He's ridding himself of some things in order to be able to reach people in these different environments. Because of their sensitivities, because of the things that they would find offensive or find off-putting, he is actually denying himself things. He's not putting anything on. It's not like makeup he can take off afterwards after he leaves the party. Like These are things that he's having to live in the middle of. Like, yeah, it's, it's really hard to follow some, some of the kosher laws of the Jewish society and all the, the food or dietary restrictions that, that they followed, right? Like, no more Fowler's barbecue after that. Like, no more pig pickets, you know? Like, you, you can't do some stuff, or you're, like, defiled and you're outside of the people for a while. They will legit reject you if you touch the unclean things, you know? That was, a, that was real. It's absolutely real. So, I'm not knocking any of us who would change our outward appearance in order to be a better missionary, but what Paul is endeavoring here is way more challenging than just the external. He's giving up things in order that he might save them. So follower of Jesus here, may I ask us, if you're a follower of Jesus here, I'm just going to pose a question that you take home today. May I ask you to consider the expectations for your standard of life for a moment and ask you the simple question of how could laying down one of those expectations help you serve God better? Like, what thing are you giving your time, your attention, your energies to that you feel like you're entitled to have or do or be able to do that at the end of the day, they're actually robbing you of freedom. They're robbing you of your hope in Jesus. They're actually building a false hope in yourself, a false hope in your own ability to keep it together and have the life that you think you want, right? For Paul, it's being paid in his primary calling. See, maybe today... It could be as simple as one night a week joining a community group and being known in community with others. It could be just as simple as that. Maybe it's the comfort of just coming to church, uh, sacrificing the comfort of just coming to church to be served. Maybe it's 
saying like, you know, I'm going to start seeing this place and this community and these people not as just a place to be fed, but as a place to come with my gifts to the table and a place to serve others, to stretch your giftings. Maybe it's bigger and grander than that. Maybe it's things that you're actually mourning right now. Maybe it's not getting the thing you want in life. Maybe it's not living the American dream. Whatever it is, God wants to provide you with joy in the giving up of your freedoms so that you and others can thrive as you point them to Jesus. See, Paul certainly demonstrates this joy and hope that we are offered to get in on. Let's look back again at the last verses together, starting with verse 23. See how Paul wraps this argument up. Paul says, I do not, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, Paul ends here with a sports analogy, which gives me the permission to end all of our gatherings with a sports analogy. No, I'm kidding. No, but um, it's only fitting, you know, uh, that I end here in this gathering uh, with a sports analogy. And uh, so even if you guys still hate the Cowboys, uh, like last week, still hate them. Not, not, not a peep. Come on. Okay, but history tells us that uh, the, the Corinthians, right, they were into sports. They were into games. They would host uh, like a, a gathering of athletes every couple years at, in Corinth. They would get this, this sense of uh, these men, primarily men, just uh, giving themselves to discipline, rigorous discipline, giving, giving themselves to athletic training and denying themselves what they're eating, what they're drinking, what they're engaging in, what they're not. This sense of like taking things away so that they can be a better, healthier athlete in person, right? And they were all doing that for like a little crown of leaves that they would put on their head. I mean, you've seen like the stuff from the Olympics, Right. Like that, that little thing, uh, that the, the, the wreaths that are symbolic now, those were real back in the day. They fought for those suckers, you know? Like people died over those things. But now we can't really make fun of those guys because grown men are, this afternoon are going to be grabbing and groping and hitting the junk out of one another so that they could win uh, and grab an oddly shaped ball and take it into a place called the end zone, Okay. And then a couple weeks from now, they'll all be like, yay, we got rings together. That's what they're all fighting for. Yes, there's money and accolades that come along with it. And that sport's called football, if you don't know. But Paul ends his sports analogy with that all runners run, but that only one receives the prize, right? I think he uses this analogy in particular because he's calling these Corinthians to run like that. Run like you are going to be the one receiving the prize at the end of the race. Run in such a way that you are going to win the race. Not just complete the race, but win it. And it's only the runners that discipline themselves, exercising self-control like an athlete controlling his diet and exercise. We should run like we're competing for an imperishable crown. And I don't think this does anything against Paul's 
theology across that's congruent with the rest of the scriptures that there's a way that we could run that would take us out of the race. That like, you're, like Jesus got you on the team, it's your job to keep you on the team. You better run real fast, you know. It's not like that. Paul's saying the way in which we should run, this is an analogy, should be like the ones who are wanting to complete and finish the race and win it. Making sure that Paul, like Paul would say, after he's preaching, he should not find himself disqualified. That his ministry is effective. See, I think there's many ways this morning that the Spirit could be moving in each of us individually to con- convince us of the things that we need to discipline ourselves over. But I think the gospel compels me to encourage the faint-hearted this morning, the ones that feel like, man, I've just given up in the race, or I want to give up. I feel like I'm being just dragged by the other people around me in the church right now. I want you to hear, Jesus loves you. He's welcoming you into rest that requires nothing but your faith in him for salvation. That's gospel. It's good news for all of us. And still, for all of us, including those of us that are faint-hearted, still need to hear this as well. We are called to work and walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are still called to run our race as we have been called in Christ. And that will look different for all of us at specifics of our lives, at different moments in our lives, but not in the everyday obedience to Jesus. Loving God, loving our neighbor, advancing the gospel in the ways that Jesus has called us to do and the normal stuff of life. See, some of us will be missionary church planners like Paul. I pray for the day when we're able to celebrate that we've sent out a group of folks with clear leadership to go plant a church somewhere else in Fayetteville or to plant somewhere, a church somewhere else around the world. But that's not going to be what faithfulness looks like for everybody. Some of us are going to be career military guys. You're going to be in the 82nd. You're going to be on post here at Fort Bragg for the most of your military career. Do it well. Run your race. Some of you will be stay-at-home moms. You'll be city planners. You'll be teachers. You'll be coaches. You'll be janitors. What I'm saying is, you need to do all of this for the fame of Jesus. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, I pray that this morning um, we would see all of our life um, as the places that you're calling us to be faithful, uh, to run our, our race as we have been called in you. Not as those who uh, run aimlessly or are... Um, just don't know what they're doing. Just kind of going through life day by day, wandering through them. But we would really live with the, the, the real clarity and purpose that comes along with being a follower of Jesus. Not, not only do we have the greatest story uh, that answers the biggest questions in our world, who are we, where we come from, but God, we also have clear purpose. What are we here for? Why have you sought us? Why have you brought us into the family? And I think it's clearly answered by a passage like this where Paul is majoring on the good news of the gospel here, not putting any obstacles in the way of the good news and calling us to do the same as we walk out our life, walk out our faith before others. Father, I pray that you would grant us our repentance that allows us to own the things in our life that we need to own the sins, the struggles, the doubts, the insecurities, 
so that we may be able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Um, the things that are hindering us from our race, God, that we would leave those things behind as we confess them before you, God, and others. Uh, Father, I pray also that you would uh, allow us as a church to be able to run the race well um, with the future that's set before us uh, at 584 South Riley Road. God, we don't want to bow down before that building as the uh, as a temple, as an idol, as a thing to be worshipped, but rather to say, God, uh, make that um, and settle that, that building as a, a, a rightly in our loves as a helpful tool to help us advance the gospel. And uh, God, I pray that uh, many years from now, we'll be able to look back um, on reflecting on preaching a passage like this and say, God, you really did answer our prayers. You really did show yourself to be faithful um, as we were faithful um, to confess our sins um, before you and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.